If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We'll be in the first 23 verses this morning. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they uh, come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did the prof- did the Isaiah well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we pray that your word would do work in our hearts. God, every person in this room has a tendency toward legalism and has a tendency to elevate our personal convictions, thoughts, feelings, Um, to the level of authority, to the level of Scripture, if we're not careful. And so, God, we need your word to help us think rightly, to correct our thoughts, to guard our hearts and thoughts. Um, God, as you taught the Pharisees and your own disciples on this day, we pray that by your word, through the Gospel of Mark, you would teach us this morning. Help us to look more like Christ. Help us to see our need for salvation because we are a people of unclean hands and we need you. Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, before we begin this morning, I, I, uh, 
I want to do something a little different. I know it's usually our, our tradition, our habit uh, to introduce prospective members at the end of our service, but I want to introduce to you this morning uh, uh, a prospective member for us here at Poplar Spring. Uh, they've, they, he's interested in joining. Uh, and, and to give you a little bit about him before we, before we would vote on him or anything, he, he's the type of guy that uh, will attend every time the doors are open. I mean, even on s- Sunday uh, evenings for growth group or Wednesday or uh, whatever time that his growth group meets, he's going to be there. He's the type of guy that's going to go on mission. Uh, he has a heart for uh, seeing uh, lost people come to, uh, to, to know uh, the Lord, and so he'll go on every mission trip. He has a passion to see that happen. Um, he'll give regularly his tithes, and, and usually in large amounts. Uh, he's faithful in his giving. He's, he's going to sing in worship. When we stand to sing, he's going to be the guy that's singing, raising his hands. He's that kind of a guy. He's going to be the guy that reads his Bible every day, usually for long periods of time, and studies it deeply. He's going to be the guy that would be willing to pray out loud in a worship gathering. If you call on him, he's got no problem. He would love to pray. Or he's the kind of guy that memorizes scripture and is going to work that into his prayers. Every time he prays, he's going to have several verses of scripture that he's going to memorize because he's, he's, he's committed to that. He's thoroughly uh, orthodox in his theology, knows the Bible, and is, and is able to teach it and proclaim it. Uh, he believes um, in heaven and hell. He believes they exist, knows the reality there. He's a family man, loves his wife, loves his kids. He's not addicted to uh, alcohol or to drugs. He never uses profanity. He's not addicted to pornography. I mean, this guy is, is, is a really stand-up guy, loves his country. I mean, loves his country fervently. I mean, even when uh, the national anthem plays for the thousandth time, he still gets misty-eyed and tears up. He loves his country so much. And he's the type of guy that's going to vote every time the doors are open for an election. Even if it's a small election, he's going to show up. He's one of the first in line because he knows it's important, and he's going to vote. His reputation in the community is stellar. If you ask anybody about him, they they are going to vouch for him. He's a a stand-up guy. And uh, his, his, uh, his religion is something to be admired. Faithful guy. I mean, if anybody, if anybody had ever earned or gained the right to go to heaven, it would be this guy. Except for sadly, this morning, church family, I, I have to tell you, he's headed straight for hell. See, I've described to you this morning not someone who's really wanting to join Poplar Spring, if you hadn't got that part yet, uh, but a first, our 21st century Pharisee. You see, in Jesus' time, I think we, we so often harp on the Pharisees and we see them in the, in the Scriptures and, and they're those guys. They're the guys that, that, uh, that are always getting it wrong. But you see, in the, in the time of Jesus, they would have not been scorned for being wrong. They would not have been looked down upon for being a legalist. Uh, no, they would, have, they would have been admired and looked up to as a model citizen. They would have been uh, held in high regard as a follower of God a person of, of piety, a person of, of love and religion and, and faithfulness. Unfortunately, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, that the Pharisees had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They had a, a zeal for God, but they didn't even know him. They didn't know who he was. They never experienced a real relationship with him. And so what's shocking this morning, friends, and what's terrifying in my own heart is that today it's possible that even in this room there could be people that have a passion for God, a a zeal for God, but not even really know him, not even in a relationship with him. And tragically, those of us that have been raised in church, those of us that have been brought up since the time we were born in the church are most susceptible to this type of deception. 
thinking we have a zeal for God when really it's something else at work in our hearts because we don't really even know him. Um, our pride, our religious practices, our rituals, our routines, our traditions can blind us to two things, I think, the, the, the sinfulness in our own heart and the need for a Savior who can alone rescue us by his blood from our sin. And I think the text this morning is meant to instruct us in that way to demonstrate to us our traditions that we can have, the traditions that we hold, uh, and then warn us of legalism and warn us what it means to have truly clean uh, hearts, what it means to be unclean and clean according to Jesus. So I've given you an outline in your bulletin. Uh, there's a few points and subpoints, so I didn't want you to get confused or lost in trying to keep track of where we're at, and so you've got that. Uh, really, though, the text is our outline. If we're, if we're walking through the text this morning, uh, my outline is just straight out of, out of the text that, that we walk through in uh, Mark chapter 7. Our first point then this morning, Jesus despises legalism. Jesus despises legalism, so he instructs us concerning our traditions. He gives us warning concerning our, our traditions, our habits, our practices. You see this in the first 13 verses. Under that, though, I think the first kind of sub-point we see is we're not to judge other people by our traditions. We're not to let our traditions be a litmus test for those around us. So before we read, uh, a bit of a recap for us. We've already witnessed Jesus doing amazing things, signs and wonders, miracles. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, he's been healing. He's been um, controlling nature with his, uh, with his voice. I mean, he's been multiplying food and, and, and providing food for thousands of people by this incredible miracle. He's exercised demons. He's actually even raised the dead. And with all of those signs and wonders, with all those things that Jesus has done to demonstrate who he is, he's attracted a, a wide variety of attention. On the one hand, he's attracted followers, and some of them are genuine, and some of them are simply leeches that just want him for what he can do for them. Uh, he's, they're, just, they're just there for entertainment, to see what he's going to do next. He's also attracted opposition, religious leaders, the religious elite of the day that are jealous and convinced that he's a fake. And they're going to do whatever they can to quieten him. And uh, these guys have shown up numerous times in the first six chapters of, of Mark, and they show up again today. Uh, the religious elite are back. They've made this long trip from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. We're not sure if it's the same group that came last time, uh, but they're back again. And what we see is that they're already convinced that they know who Jesus is. They've got this Jesus guy all figured out, and he's in the wrong, by the way. And so they're going to do whatever they can to question him and trip him up. And isn't that that's so often like us, right? Like we have our minds made up about somebody. We have our minds made up concerning someone's character. And so we're looking for evidence to, to affirm that supports our preconceived ideas of them. We know what they're like. Now here's, here's, you know, here's the evidence. And even if we can't find evidence that would support our preconceived ideas, we go after their friends, right? Their acquaintances, because someone can be guilty by association. So if I can prove that their friends or the, the people that they're spending time with, if they're in the wrong, then I can prove that Jesus is wrong. Um, that's what the, these guys were thinking. That's what these Pharisees were thinking. And I, I, th I think that's a warning for us uh, to, to not be that way, not to have these ideas fixed on what people are like and and so look at, again, verses 1 through 4 with me. Uh, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then in verse 3 and 4, uh, you see Mark giving us some commentary on that. He's going to give us some information, some background on what's really going on here. 
to help us to understand. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I think we must understand here what Mark is describing in these verses. Um, this hand washing that's taking place in these verses is different from the way that we would wash our hands before a meal. When you and I do it, it's usually because of, uh, it's usually for sanitary purposes, right? Like we don't want to eat our food. We don't want to touch the, the food on our plate if we've got germs or bacteria on our hands that may make us sick or be, um, that, may, that may come off on the food. And so we wash our hands before a meal. It's just what we do. In Jesus' time, there may have been some of that going on, but the, the thing that it's talking about here is not so much hygiene as it is tradition and ceremony. Um, Mark's telling us in his commentary, these verses that are in parentheses here, um, in verses 3 and 4, that they would wash ceremonially before a meal. And the way they would do this, they would dip their arms all the way down to the elbow <clears throat> and then hold them up. You've seen uh, uh, hospital shows where somebody's about to go into surgery and they're, they're holding their hands up. That's sort of the idea here. Water's running down. They've, they've purified their hands. They've cleaned them for, for ceremonial reasons. And if they've went to the marketplace that day where Gentiles were, then they were required to wash even more, more like taking a bath because they've possibly brushed shoulders with a Gentile. And so, uh, and then Mark goes into more detail and says they wash other things too. They wash their cups and pitchers and kettles, even the seats that they sit on. And what's really going on here is is is, an, is a desire from man to come before God clean, do anything that they can to be to be clean. And what we see is there there are thirty five pages devoted to not in Scripture but commentary, Jewish commentary on the Scripture. Thirty five pages devoted to the washing of vessels and daily instruments. And they were serious about this. They wanted to do anything they can uh, to, 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 be, to be clean before God. And uh, so this was also to establish a, a spiritual superiority over, over the, the other people, the, the Gentiles and even other, other Jews. Um, again, once a rabbi uh, was ex- excommunicated from Israel, from the faith, for not ceremonially washing before a meal, and the same thing that they're accusing these disciples of doing. Uh, it's reported that a rabbi <clears throat> was imprisoned and almost killed under the Romans because he used his daily ration of water for this ritual washing instead of the, for drinking. And so you can imagine, if it's so important, if they held these unbiblical traditions in such high regard that they're willing to die for them or even be imprisoned for them, uh, then you can imagine the collision that's coming. When Jesus confronts and shatters these traditions, that's exactly what's about to happen. And Mark makes it clear that they're doing these things in the tradition of the elders. So what does that mean? Who are these elders? Uh, Well, they're leaders. They're respected men of Israel. Uh, They're the guys that are the rulers in the synagogue. They're the guys that people looked up to. These are the traditions that they're uh, keeping. And it's clear that it's not Scripture. It's the tradition of the elders. It's not the tradition of uh, Moses or the Old Testament. They're keeping these laws that are, that are passed down through man that are commentary on the law of God. And so an example, the law said, God's word said, the Old Testament said, that only priests were required to perform these ceremonial washings. You see that in Exodus 30, Exodus 40, and 2 Chronicles chapter 4. These elders, though, over time had elevated this tradition and required it of all people. So what God said was only necessary for the priests to do as symbolic, as a picture of purity, as of cleanliness. Uh, they taught that you must, every one of you must do it because there's a chance that you've rubbed elbows with a, fifth, a filthy Gentile 
And if that's the case, then you're unclean. And before you would eat a meal, you need to wash. So you see how the elders are elevating uh, something God said and taking it to a place of Scripture that, that wasn't supposed to be there. And so this problem arises with Jesus and his disciples, and we see their indignation. We see their legalism uh, bubbling in their own hearts, boiling as they're brewing over this issue. Uh, they observed the, the disciples of Jesus not keeping in these traditions, not keeping the, the traditions of the elders. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees said to this, and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So what's the problem here? These Jewish leaders, they're, they're judging the disciples, they're judging the followers of Jesus based upon tradition rather than Scripture, based upon something that man has created and said rather than what God has said. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with tradition. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with tradition. In fact, many traditions are good. They help us be connected to the past, to the ones that went on before us. Uh, there's a legacy that's left from those that went on before us, and to keep in those traditions can be a good thing. The problem is, here for uh, these Pharisees and for us today, is when we elevate our traditions, our convictions to the level of Scripture. When we elevate our personal convictions or traditions to the level of Scripture and then expect other people to rigidly follow them. That was the issue at stake here. And to be clear, every church, every family, every household, every home has traditions. We have them here at Poplar Spring. Uh, the fact that we wrap our Lottie Moon gifts and put them under the tree, that's a tradition that we do. Uh, the fact that we uh, have a harvest day every year where we gather together and celebrate what the Lord has done in our lives, the way he's provided for us, the way he's taken care of us, and we worship together, and then we go eat a big meal. That's a tradition here at Poplar Spring. Baptizing people in the creek instead of a baptistry, that's a tradition here. It's all things that, that uh, four and a half years ago when we came, that they were new to us. We didn't, we didn't, we'd never been to a church that did these things. Well, we loved them. And over the years, we've grown to, to enjoy and to cherish these traditions. Nothing's wrong with having traditions. It's wrong if we judge others by those traditions, expect them to live up to them as if they were Scripture. And additionally, again, we may have personal convictions. Now, these Jewish leaders, they genuinely thought they were honoring God by this ceremonial washing. They thought they were honoring God. And we, we may have personal convictions as well. We may have convictions about something that the Scriptures are just not clear on. There, It's not explicit in Scripture. It's wrong to enforce these other people to wash their hands in recognition of sinfulness because God had not said to do it, um, not because it was wrong in itself. And so I think we must ask this question, and again, I guess sub-point B, uh, we, we don't judge others by our traditions, but sub-point B, are we holding our traditions as sacred? I think that's the, that's the root of the issue, and you see it in verses 6 through 13. So in other words, not only should we avoid holding people to our traditions, elevating our traditions and, and, and holding other people to them, we should also hold our traditions loosely, uh, hold them with open hands. Uh, sometimes our traditions outlive their usefulness. Sometimes our traditions were helpful or they worked just fine in the past. They were things that we should have been doing in the past, but they've become a snare or a trap or a problem in the present. Some of our traditions... Uh, or is it possible that we're holding them as sacred? I think that's what's going on here. They're making their traditions a mountain on which to die. They're making their traditions sacred. And so what's the problem? When you do that, when you uh, hold your traditions up as sacred, as authority, um, then you get into some problems. And I've given you a couple sub-sub points there that I think 
are clear in the text that can come from holding your traditions as sacred. Number one, uh, we can become hypocrites with distant hearts. That's what Jesus says to them. Look at verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. Uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 here. He tells the Pharisees that Isaiah was talking about them, uh, right? So that's not a proud moment. You don't write home to mama and say, hey, Jesus was saying I was in the Bible. Not, not when it's this that, that Jesus is saying the Bible says about you, right? That your lips are, are only paying lip service. Your heart's far from God. And Jesus uses some strong words here. He calls them hypocrites. He basically is saying to them, you're religious actors. You're pretenders. You're phonies. You've missed it completely. Your religion is all about words and show. There's, there's no heart set upon God. Everything you're doing here is for yourself. Those are hard words to hear. When you think that you're honoring God, and they were busy washing their hands before a meal, but they were guilty of having filthy hearts before God. Their priorities, priorities were in completely the wrong place. They looked good on the outside. Everything looked okay, but on the inside they were... In deep spiritual problems, they were in deep sinfulness. And Jesus says, in vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. Let, let those words be heavy for us, church family. For those of us that would be here every Sunday, day in and day out, week in and week out, that you worship me in vain. Your time here, your spending in vain. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men and leaving the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. What he's saying is this, friends, the source of your spiritual authority. That's the, that's the question you need to be wrestling with. What is the source of your spiritual authority? Who will you listen to? Will it be God or will it be man? Will it be man's traditions or will it be the word of God? That's the question that it boils down to. And I think that's the question for every one of us. When we even unintentionally hold our traditions as sacred, something we will not give up, that we're planting our foot and we will not give up this tradition, we risk becoming hypocrites. So what about us today? Let's not just let this be about these Pharisees 2,000 years ago. What about us today, church family? Where's our heart in relation to God? Are our lips saying one thing and our hearts saying something different? Are we guilty of honoring Him with our lips and our heart is, is far away? God doesn't just want us to go through the motions. He doesn't want us to just pretend. He doesn't want us to be phonies or fakers. He wants our heart. He wants, he wants authentic worship. He wants real repentance, true obedience in prayer. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want just our lips. And since we're thinking about those things, then we also must connect. What are the things that are important to us? What are the things in our personal lives, our personal convictions that we get bent out of shape over? Will they align with Scripture? Are they, are they explicit in Scripture? Or is it something that's passed along through tradition or through our household, the way we were brought up? I think we must ask these questions, even as we think about church, what things are important to us in church, even as we have a vision Sunday tonight, what things are we planning to do next year? Are they, are they things that God would uh, prescribe for us in Scripture? Are they just traditions that we've handed? Are we just repeating the things that we've always done? These are questions we must wrestle with. It would never be said of us that we were so set on our traditions that we missed God's heart. Can we provide scriptural basis for what we do and what we believe? Are we text-driven people? Or are we tradition-driven people? I think that's the question that must be asked. I think that's what Jesus is pointing out to them. Second thing at risk, I think when we elevate our traditions to the authority of Scripture, to the level of Scripture, 
Second thing we risk is that we can elevate tradition over God's word, which results in spiritual disobedience. Look at verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, you can already see the problem there. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you had have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making, the, making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Those traditions are, are sacred. If your traditions are sacred, then you risk becoming a hypocrite. But you can also, and you probably will also, elevate your tradition over God's word, which is a terrible place to be in. You see the progression. Verse 7. Watch what he's saying in the way that he's talking about commandments of God and of men. Verse 7, they teach the commandments of men. So that's where it starts, right? You teach as if they're authority the commandments of men. You've emphasized something that man has made up. Uh, and then verse 8, you leave the commandments of God. So over here, there's the word of God. It's clear. There, it, this is the word of God. And you've been teaching this, and so you've left the commandments of God. Then verse 9, you reject the commandments of God. So not only now have you left it, you've completely rejected it. And then verse 13, you've made void the word of God. By your actions, you've made void the word of God. Jesus gives them an example. He goes, here's case in point number one. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother. Again, that points us back to Exodus chapter 20. He says, anyone who curses father or mother must be put to death, Exodus 21. So Jesus is giving them examples from Scripture, um, Exodus 20 and 21, that are clear commandments for Israel from the Scriptures, Old Testament commandments. One's from the Ten Commandments, and the other one's just from national laws for Israel in the Old Testament. The point is clear with both. Honor your parents. Honor father and mother. That's the principle that Jesus is showing them in Scripture. And here's what the Pharisees have done. Here's what he's saying you've done. You've created a loophole. You think you're so smart. You think you've got this figured out. You've created a loophole, a tradition known as Corbin, right? And so the scripture tells us uh, what that is. A gift that was Corbin, that was the word, uh, was dedicated to God. It was something that you'd given to God in an irrevocable vow. So this thing, these flowers, I give them to God. So because they're God's, no one else can touch them. They're off limits. No one else can have them uh, for any other purposes. And these guys were allowing people to put certain gifts under Corbin, this law, as a way of avoiding the responsibility of taking care of their aging parents. So, so imagine this. Get this. They're really avoiding the commandment of God to honor parents, to provide for your, your aging parents, your, your parents that have provided for you. Care for them. Honor them in the way that you live. And they're feeling good about it. They're feeling good about rejecting the commandment of God because they're doing it for God. I've, I've Corbin, I've given that to God. I can't use those resources to take care of mom and dad because those are God's resources. I serve God by directly disobeying his commandments. Do you hear the, the, the way that that's just a ludicrous thought and statement? And this was an example of what they were doing. And he says, you do many such things. You've tried to do this all over scripture. This is an example of a tradition that they had set up in direct contradiction to the Scriptures, to what God's law had told them to do. And it reveals a hard heart. It reveals hypocrisy in worship. It reveals disobedience at the core. And again, friends, hear me clearly. These were not atheists or secularists. These were not people that would have, would have lashed out toward God. These were the spiritual leaders of Israel. These were the men that would have been considered faithful in the synagogues. These were the men that were family men who loved their wives and children and thought they were raising them well. So again, friends, hear me closely. Traditions are fine. 
We must constantly ask ourselves, evaluate our hearts to see if we're elevating them to the place of, of scriptural authority. Personal convictions are great, especially in those gray areas where the Bible doesn't speak clearly, but we must come down somewhere. And where are we going to land on fill-in-the-blank issue? That's fine, and we're going to have personal convictions. But if we're elevating them to a place of authority, scriptural authority, we're in deep trouble. Pharisees at this point are reeling. You can imagine how fuming they are, how mad and furious they are at Jesus at this point. You can imagine the crowd just sort of standing back and kind of like, mm, this is getting good. <laughs> These two religious heavyweights are going at it, and they're just kind of there for the show. And then Jesus motions them closer. Look at verse 14. And he called the people to him, he called the people to him again. That leads to our second major point. Jesus despises sin, so he instructs us concerning spiritual uncleanness. Verses 14 through 23. Before we read these verses, I think it's important for us, church family, to realize that in that day and in this room, the human heart has within it the root of every kind of evil and every kind of sin. I'm not saying that you're participating or you're acting upon those sins, but in the human heart, there is potential for every kind of human sin. And it is possible for us to look nice and clean and cleaned up on the outside, but on the inside be dead. And the most deadly contamination is not what we eat, touch, or our or, or sea, but it is what is in our hearts. That's where the deadly contamination of sin is. And so knowing that is a preface to what he's about to tell them. Um, I think the first sub-point you see under there is that uh, nothing that enters your body from outside can make you unclean. That's where he goes in verses 14 through 19. So read with me. He says this, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand... There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not in his heart, but in his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Again, going back to the original complaint, the original uh, accusation from these Pharisees, they're uh, concerned about hand-washing. They're worried these disciples are not washing their hands, and they're accusing them because they think in doing so they can accuse Jesus. And they're, they're worried about hand-washing because they want to be clean before God. I mean, that's, that's what it goes back to. And then Jesus tells them that nothing that enters your body from the outside can make you unclean. So ceremonial washing that they're so worried about is unnecessary. And then further, that foods, uh, when they're eaten, they go straight into the stomachs and then they leave the body. And actually, this is pretty graphic language here that Jesus uses. He, literally in the Greek, he says the food enters your stomach, and then literally in the Greek, it goes into the little latrine. That's, that's what Jesus is saying in the Greek. It's all physical. It's food. You're just chewing it up and eating it. But being clean before God is a spiritual matter. It's a matter of the heart. These are completely different things. When Jesus is addressing, addressing this issue of eating with unclean hands, um, uh, that, that's originally what the question was about. That's what he's dealing with here is the unclean hands issue. But Mark, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again, Mark recording this gospel for us, through the inspiration of the Holy, Holy Spirit, draws out another important implication here in Jesus' teaching. And note, too, that Mark doesn't do this often. I mean, we've been studying this together. You may have noticed as well, Mark doesn't add editorial or interpretive comments that often. 
He doesn't step out of the, the story or the text or out of Jesus' teaching and say, let me, let me just tell you what he meant here when he said this. He doesn't do that too often. And so when he does, we should pay attention. Uh, Matthew, Luke, and John do it all the time. Mark, not so much. And so when he does, it's, it's important. So let's pay attention. Um, your Bible probably has it in parentheses. Mine does in verse 19. Uh, the very end of verse 19, in parentheses, he says, Thus he declared all foods clean. Notice, friends, that it doesn't say uh, in that parentheses that Jesus said all foods were clean. Uh, if it did, if it said that Jesus said all foods were clean, then the meaning would be that, you know, Jesus says you don't need to worry about those food issues. Uh, those things are kind of outdated. Everything's all right. Just go ahead and, and partake in whatever foods you want. That, that's, not what, that's not what it says. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that these cleanliness laws were outdated and should be just left in the ditch. Um, if, if that was what he was doing, he would be giving, to be clear, an authoritative opinion on the issue. But that's not what he does. Go back and, and read in the princes. What does it say? That's not, what it, that's not what it says. It says Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus pronounced Jesus made a, a definitive statement. He was saying, as of now, I make these foods that you've been hearing about uh, clean. He's saying to them, I called the world into being. I called that storm you heard about to cease. I called that girl that was dead back to life. And now I declare that all foods are clean. To be clear, friends, Jesus is doing something radical right here. Uh, if, if, if nothing entering your body from the outside can make you spiritually unclean, then that means that there are no longer any clean or unclean foods. Uh, Jesus is saying uh, something very radical in that day, but it's something we need to hear in ours, and that's that we can eat bacon. <laughs> that's really good. That's good news for us, friends. Uh, and and, and I'm, I'm being silly, but uh, this was a huge issue for the church at this time. Even more so than this issue of washing of hands before a meal were the, the food laws that prohibited them to eat pig. Uh, that was much more serious. You see, this, this issue of washing hands was something the, el the elders had elevated over a period of time and had become law for everybody. The issue of food goes all the way back. That was for all of Israel for hundreds of years, law. Jesus is make, making a, a big deal of something here. He's as the authority that he has as God, he is making something change. Now you see these food laws were to set Israel apart. It's a holy nation. They were to make Israel different from those surrounding nations and what they did, what they ate, uh, the, the type of behavior that they had. And we know that Christ had the utmost respect and reverence for the Word of God, for the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew his Bible. He cherished it. He said that not even a jot or tittle would pass away until everything had been fulfilled. And so we know that, 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 that Christ is not minimizing the Old Testament here. He would never say, I've abolished that old school stuff. You don't need that Old Testament law anymore. It's, it's outdated. It's silly. We don't need it. But what he is saying is that, and, and clearly, I have come and fulfilled, not abolished, fulfilled that law. Jesus has come and he has cashed in on the demands of the law. He has come and he has fulfilled everything that the law required. He has come and that these food, longer, food laws are no longer binding. He is the way. And, and again, friends, remember what those food laws were for. They were to set Israel apart, make them a holy people unto the Lord. Jesus is saying, I am the way that mankind is set apart and made holy unto God. I am the way that men can approach God. I am the one through whom you can come to God. He is the Savior for the Jews and for those pig-eating Gentiles. That's what he's saying. These words are revolutionary. 
And Jesus is making a definitive statement about himself as God in this statement and a definitive statement about sin and salvation. To be clear, friends, Jesus is saying that food ends up in the stomach, but sin begins in the heart. Food uh, is eaten, digested, and then expelled in the latrine, but sin remains in the heart and produces all sorts of manifestations in your actions before leading to death. Jesus is drawing a clear line here, and hear me closely. Jesus is saying to them, the problem with humanity is not what you may do, but it is who you are. Sin in your heart is what has separated you from God. That is your uncleanness. And real uncleanness, real impurity and defilement are inside and unseen, but will eventually reveal themselves in your actions. B, the second sub-point here. The evil that comes out of your heart is what makes you unclean. Verses 20 through 23. And we're wrapping up here. So Jesus' first point, again, concerning this idea of cleanness and uncleanness is that nothing that enters your body can make you unclean. Second, the evil that comes from your heart is what makes you unclean. So the source of evil, the place of uncleanness, is actually inside of you. It's who you are. Uh, Look at verses 20 through 23. And he said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Some folks, when you see these lists like this in the Bible, call these uh, vice lists or sin lists. And uh, this is actually the only one in the Gospels. Of all the, all the times that this comes up, it's in the epistles or it's in the latter part of the, the New Testament. But, it, but in the Gospels, this is the only list that we're given like this. Now, there's a parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, Matthew's version of this same story. But here in Mark and, and there in Matthew are the only time that we have one of these lists. Uh, Mark Dever calls uh, this, these verses the fingers of sin, right? So the, the, what Christ is saying is the source of evil, the source of sin is your heart. But these fingers are what we see. These verses 21 through 23, uh, or 22 really, uh, these descriptions, these specific things are the fingers of sin. They're evidence of a corrupt heart. You can't see a heart, but you can see the actions that come from a heart. Um, and and I, th- I think what we see here is that, again, sin's root will produce sin's fruit. And this is the fruit that you see in verses 21 and 22. Uh, it's ugly. It's deceptive. It's a crop that you don't want to see come to maturity in your life. And here Jesus lists 13, 13 specific characteristics or actions that come from uh, the problem, which is a sinful heart. And again, this list is not exhaustive. It's not, well, if I don't do these things, I guess Jesus thinks I'm okay. No, the list is not exhaustive, but it gives us an idea. It's a, it's a litmus test. It's a, to help identify where we may be. It doesn't name every sin imaginable. Uh, it gives us context clues to the, to the fact that we know we're sinful and have sinful hearts. Again, the old saying, if it looks like a duck and swims like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. And Jesus is giving these 13 characteristics to say, if you, not even that you see these actions in your life, but if you see the proclivity, you see the possibility that you could be inclined toward one of these things, it's evidence that you have a sinful heart. And so this description gives us those clues to look for. And I think he does that because, friends, sin is very much like fire. Um, we see this analogy even in the scriptures. But imagine this morning that you get home for Sunday lunch and you walk into the house and you look in your living room and now there's a fire on your couch. <laughs> and, it, and, and one of the couch cushions is ablaze with three or four foot flames. 
Now think how foolish it would be if you just sat there and said, well, you know, the, the whole house is not on fire. It's just the one couch cushion, and I can find another cushion or, or a, a, a cool uh, couch cover, you know, slip cover for the couch. So I'm, I'm not worried about the couch. You know, the one cushion's gone, but it'll, it'll be okay. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about it. Uh, no, you would never do that because you realize that if you don't do something about it, that cushion is going to be emblazed, but it's going to lead to the next cushion and the whole couch and then the rug and then the curtains. It's, it's going to consume the whole house. Why? Because fire can't be satisfied. Fire's never satisfied. It, it can't be contained to just one couch cushion or just one corner of the house. It eventually will overtake anything and everything that it comes into contact with. And sin is the same way. You can't just ignore it like, oh, you know, this is one little problem, this one little area in my life that, that this is touching, but it's not that big a deal. It'll, it'll stay right here. No, friends, uh, sin leads to separation from God, and the result is increased suffering in this life, but more importantly, in the life to come. And so Jesus gives us graciously this list to say, hey, do I see in my heart that I may be inclined to some of these things, that I may see in myself some of these, these things stirring? So what do we do with these verses? What do we do with the fingers of sin, as Dever calls it? I think we stop and take inventory. I think we'd be foolish to rush past them. Now, we're not going to go through each one of these uh, specifically, one by one. But I think we ask, what problems do I see in my life? Where might the Lord be using this text of Scripture to identify areas in my own heart? Which areas do I need God's help in killing these sin in my life? And again, I'm not going to go through each one of them, but on the back of your uh, outline, I've posted a chart there. I'm not taking credit for that chart. That's from Danny Aiken's uh, commentary. I've just reproduced it for you. I think it would be valuable to use in growth groups to say, uh, let's be a little bit vulnerable with one another and just say, uh, even if I'm not sinned here and, and done this thing, I know I may be inclined there. I know I'm susceptible there. Or none of us are outside of falling here. And let's pray for one another. Be genuine. Be open and authentic and transparent. And do life with one another in such a way that you're walking through some of these things together and praying for one another. Uh, so, so I think as we wrap up, church family, as we conclude, what do we learn here? What do we learn about God, ourselves, and uh, our condition before the Lord? I think there are basically two approaches to religion, to faith. And they're being outlined here for us in the text by Christ. Uh, they can be summed up in two words, and you've heard this before. Do or done. And I think the world notices there's a problem. Though anybody can look around our world and see that it's broken, it's fallen. There's, we live in a messed up world. And the world's answer is, what can I do to fix it? What can I do? And the scriptures are teaching us, Christ is teaching us here to the most religious people of his day that the problem is not out there, the problem is inside of each one of us. And the answer is not what can I do, but what has Christ done? For these Pharisees, what was Christ going to do? What was he there to accomplish? It's our salvation. And so, friends, I think the question for each one of us as we wrestle through this text, as, as we're around the lunch table today or in our growth groups this week at some point, where might I have places in my heart where I'm holding my convictions, my traditions up to the level of Scripture? Where might I be thinking that I'm doing okay when God says this is lip service and your heart is far from me? I pray we would wrestle with hard questions like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray it would not just be a routine and exercise of mental activity, but God, you would let this word uh, so go into our hearts that we couldn't get away from it. We couldn't escape it this week. 
I pray for everyone, everyone in this room that we'd be asking the question, am I just giving lip service to the King of Kings or is my heart set upon this one who's given his life for me? Father, help us to rest in what you've done and not to see our faith as something that we've got to do, that we've got to accomplish, we've got to earn. We give you this time and we pray that there in our response, it would be genuine, it would be real and authentic, that we would do business with you and repent of sin if there's sin in our hearts and our lives. We would reconcile with brothers and sisters if there's issues that we have toward one another that would be committed to walking in obedience with you. Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, they've never surrendered to you, they're still trying to do whatever they can to win heaven. God, I pray that you would reveal to them today their need, their need for Christ who has accomplished salvation, who has defeated death and hell. We give you this time and pray that you would work in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.